This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 7 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. Biden picks Janet Yellen as the US Treasury Secretary. UK COVID infections fall by 30% in the recent lockdown. And Kavan, the world's loneliest elephant, has arrived in Cambodia. That's what's new and interesting in the world that we live in this week. On another track is talking to people that we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. And then we'll just have to find out where it records it to at the end. And then I think you just emailed it through WeTransfer to me the last time, which was good. So I got disconnected. God damn it. All right. So now I got to find that. So now this is going to be advanced math for me. I am in the meeting. That's the voice of Ron France, owner of Sculptural Spaces based in the US. Ron decided this year to launch his business at the height of COVID-19. To say he's a risk taker is a slight understatement. His philosophy has always been listen to the customer and fully understand what their needs are. He believes that organisations that value their people will always rise to the top. If anyone can help you get your demoralised team back on board, Ron can. Oh, and to top it all, you can enhance your workspace with innovative products that make it uniquely yours. I first started by asking Ron about what type of business he decided to start during these tough times. So I'm an independent uh, commercial furniture uh, representative for about uh, nine different manufacturers located around the country. And my audience that I'm calling on are end users, commercial furniture dealers, as well as architects and designers. And how did you kind of get around to starting the business? Was it because of the COVID situation or was there always that lovely seed that was planted, that little acorn that's now grown into the oak tree? How did it get started? Yeah, I think it was a little bit of both. I've always been thinking about what the opportunities would be from an entrepreneurial standpoint. I think uh, COVID gave me a gentle push, if you will, to decide to do it. The company that I was previously with had cut a lot of people, which included myself. I have a lot of friends who are independent reps around the country, uh, former colleagues who have done it. And uh, that kind of spurred me on to start my business. So how did you kind of go about the kind of the logistics of starting the business? Because I know for most people being thrown into the same situation that we've all been since kind of, uh, I suppose, mid-March, what were some of the kind of great logistical things that you did that helped you start the business? Well, you know, a couple of things was just in terms of reaching out to my friends who were independent reps and, you know, seeking counsel from them of how they started their individual businesses. And I started doing a lot of research, look, trying to find manufacturers that were looking for independent representation. Uh, at the same time, I contacted my accountant and started up a subchapter S corporation from a financial perspective. And then I elicited my son, who's a very creative individual, who created a website for me. So really, you were calling on all your resources. And I suppose you haven't got to be shy in this current world, have you? You've got to really, well, I used to use an expression, prostitute yourself, but it's probably not the right expression to use on, <laughs> on a podcast. But you, literally, it's beg, borrow and steal, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and it's kind of reaching far and wide, seeking input. I talk to people 
who I literally hadn't talked to in 25 years, who were colleagues in, in the past and gave me some insight, as well as folks that I just had recently uh, you know, connected with. I had a very wide net, if you will, that I, uh, that I went out to seek input from. Now, I'd love to talk a little bit about that because your background really in business, it goes back quite a long way, not just in the kind of uh, contract furnishing sides of things, but you've had quite a variety of different jobs. So how did you get started in the kind of work environment? Where, where did Ron start when he was 18, 19, 20? When I was a young young guy in Pennsylvania, while I was in high school, I actually worked for a, a residential furniture company, delivering furniture and and doing all those kinds of things. I ended up always wanting to go into business. Uh, I went to Brown University in uh, New England and got a degree in organizational behavior and economics. And my intent was always to get into business. And the first company I went to work for was a large textile manufacturer, which also their primary focus was carpet. And I went to them as a salesperson. They moved me to California after training. I've lived in California since the early 80s and uh, never left. My goodness. Yeah. So you, yeah. So it kind of launched you into, well, a similar business to the, the contract furnishing business, wasn't it? In, in some yes. ways, it was interior materials. Similar decision makers, similar sales process, dealers, architects, designers, clients. So let's talk a little bit about your, your business. You, you know, sculptural spaces, um, it's, it's dealing with the architects, it's dealing with the designers and what have you. Where do you kind of key in where other businesses don't? Have you found your niche yet? Because it's a fairly young business. When did you actually start it? I actually started, officially started September 1. I was working a little bit prior to that, you know, getting uh, the right manufacturers that I wanted to represent lined up. But it's really been since the beginning of September. And obviously, COVID's had some real challenges in uh, interacting, particularly with architects and designers. Uh, many of them are still working virtually. Yeah, Their offices are closed to a large extent. So the niche that I've been really going after is um, the educational segment to a, to a certain extent. Actually, colleges and universities appear to still be uh, open to doing work and are interested in some of the solutions that I've been presenting. And also working with dealers, representing some product lines that are you know, relatively in need of right now, which has to do with uh, glass screens, Lexan screens, safety kinds of issues for companies that are getting their employees back to the office, or at least starting to. So those are some of the niches that I've been playing with, so to speak, as I'm looking more longer term for larger projects. So out of interest, I mean, because of the network of people that you've known over your kind of extensive career, what sort of response have you had from, you know, your colleagues, your ex-colleagues and your customers? What sort of support have you had? Actually, the reaction that I've received from everyone that uh, that I've reached out to has been nothing but positive. When I launched my announcement that I was forming sculptural spaces on LinkedIn, I had over 8,000 views of my announcement, which I was absolutely shocked, you know, that I that I had that many uh, people who reached out in one way, shape or form just to recognize of what I was up to. How the heck do you go about getting 8,000 views? Was there kind of a, a, something you did or was it just the fact that you've, you're a great networker? Is that what it's down to? I think to a large extent, it's the fact that I'm, a, that I'm a great networker. You know, I firmly believe kind of in my DNA since I was a kid is you, um, you, you reach out to everyone, you speak to everyone, you talk to everyone. It kind of jokingly, when I was a kid, I used to go to work with my father on a farm. My nickname back then for the, uh, her, his fellow farm workers was 20 Questions. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> because I would always be asking them questions, so, you know, 
And uh, that's kind of followed me, I think, in my personality. Um, I'm always willing to listen to people. I'm willing to learn. And I think you can learn something from, from anyone, which is what a boss told me a long time ago when I was in high school, that you have the opportunity to learn uh, something from anyone. You just have to give them a chance. You know, it's interesting you should say that because my background being, uh, as, as they call it, an army brat, that was the nickname that was given to us. We were traveling the world when we were kids for 22 years. And people used to say, oh, have you had the interview by David yet? You know, whenever I meet somebody, it is the 20 questions because you're interested in people. Absolutely. So tell me something about the logistics, okay, of, of kind of starting a business that, you know, currently, I mean, you hit on one very good one, you, your networking was so important, you know, to get out there and start talking to people. But if somebody's starting a business at the moment, what tools can they use, do you think, that are out there that really would help get their business launched? What I did is I used the internet extensively, you know, particularly as it related to uh, securing lines that I was optimistically going to be representing. I used a resource called uh, My Resource Library, which has a variety of manufacturers listed on it and with their catalogs and all their contact information. So I literally uh, wrote down every one of those companies and I reached out to almost every one of them with an introduction of who I was, what I was uh, attempting to do. And if they were looking for representation in the Southern California market, uh, or if maybe they weren't happy with their current representation. And I was surprised how many companies responded positively. I'm representing eight different manufacturers in a variety of different applications, if you will, from the interiors envelope. So I think you need to reach out to as many resources as you can in your area of expertise and your network. I also reached out to fellow individuals that I've worked with in the past who are also independent representatives around the country and, you know, ask them, hey, how did you get started? What were some of the roadblocks? How did you start your website? What does your website look like? What was important? What are some of the mistakes that you made along the ways that I could might be able to learn from? So that that was really reaching out to as wide a network as I could. So really your background there was quite interesting because when you started out uh, probably you know going from sort of high school into university you did quite a diverse pair of kind of degrees didn't you you didn't go into the normal kind of route you did was it economics and another type of degree and you kind of combined them but tell me about, about that yeah well one of the one of the unique things about brown university is where i went and also my wife uh, julie of 41 years now amazingly, is that at Brown University, you have the ability to uh, pick any courses you want. There's really no real requirements other than you need to fulfill your requirements in your area of specialization, if you will, in economics or sociology or history. And you have to take usually a minimum of about eight courses in that. And then from there, you can do whatever you want to do. I decided back then that I wanted to combine economics with somewhat of a focus on business in what is a primarily a liberal arts college. So I ended up forming my degree in economics and organizational behavior. And it's actually been very helpful for me, probably more in the last 10 to 15 years than it was in the previous 15 years, because companies in general challenged with their culture and aligning their culture with their physical environment that they're creating for their team members. You know, many of the concepts that I learned in organizational behavior, again, 30 plus years ago, have really come to fruition in the last 10 to 15 years as organizations have been addressing you know, their physical space that they're uh, occupying in. As you say that so well, because never before have we had such a situation where there's been so much pressure on that workspace and how it's going to be utilized in the future. 
and how do we adapt to that? And and what's your kind of, if you had the crystal ball, because you've got this experience in workspaces and organizational behavior, where, what's the crystal ball telling you? How is it going to be organized in the future? I know it's a bit of a kind of long shot question, but what do you think? That's the $64,000 question, I think, for most organizations today. I think one of the uniquenesses that COVID has really challenged everyone with is the ability to be able to work at home or in an alternative work environment to your to the traditional office. And I think the velocity of the way COVID impacted us has just really forced you know every organization to think about allowing as much flexibility as possible for their employees as they're going back to work in whatever that physical environment is going to look like. It's going to be different. I don't think the requirement of uh, you need to be there five days a week, eight hours a day, which still was a pretty traditional culture in a lot of organizations. I think COVID has allowed leadership to understand that people can have the flexibility of working at home or working in an alternative work environment and still be highly productive. You know, that's an interesting point you make because a lot of the CEOs are kind of nervous about it. I know, I think I may have mentioned before, but uh, probably about five or six weeks ago, the CEO of Netflix said he really didn't think people were designed to be working from home. I'm paraphrasing, but words to that effect. How do you think that we are going to make the transition? How are we going to convince the the CEOs of the world, the owners of companies, that they can have the confidence in their staff to work from home and set that up in a great way, a positive way? I think the the success of what's happened over the last six months is, is going to demonstrate to them to a large extent that, you know, people can still get their work done. They can do it productively. And I think people, quite candidly, are going to be more selective as the economy improves in terms of where they want to work. You know, there was this whole uh, discussion a while ago about it, it was a worker's choice as it related to that. And I think as we go back to somewhat of a normalcy, which is in the future, I think employees are really kind of rethinking their whole work environment. They're going to be attracted to companies that are going to allow them more flexibility to be able to do that. I still think the office, the physical environment in office is very important. I talked to a principal of a design firm in Los Angeles just recently, and I asked him about you know his personal experience. And he said that they're doing great things. He said the biggest challenge that he has in this is that he doesn't get have the opportunity to mentor younger team members. And he said that's the biggest concern that he has, particularly for younger folks, individuals coming into the work environment. He doesn't have that one-on-one time that's somewhat informal. And that's yeah. his biggest concern. Uh, you know, being a manager myself of a team just recently, we, we found that a massive challenge. And one of the things that I instigated was a, a regular Zoom meeting either every day or every other day, literally just for about 10 or 15 minutes, not even as long as that sometimes. Just check in. you got a pulse. You know, you got a heartbeat. Great. Things are going to okay. What's any worries, anything or issues? And I found that that was really important for a younger team, you know, to just touch base every day because the anxiety levels can go up through the roof, you know, because they're used to having that communication, you know, with uh, their colleagues and their direct, uh, you know, report. Yeah, it's a tough one. It's a really, really tough one. Well, and I think part of that checking in, too, is part of it is the behavior of the leader, that it isn't that you're checking in to check up on them. You're checking in because you care about them. 
I mean, I wanted to talk about that a little bit because different types and styles of management are are really coming to the the surface at the moment. You know, you see the managers who are the the, the autocratic, the ones that say do this. They're not necessarily the leaders from the front, but the, 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 there's a change in management happening where it's become more of about being a coach. Would you agree with yeah, that? Yeah, I, I firmly believe that. The leadership skills that I think are going to propel organizations have much more to do with creating a highly collaborative environment where you have a team leader who is not autocratic, who's there from a support standpoint, but they've, they've earned the respect of the people, of the team, of the organization, whatever that is. And leaders can run an organization based on fear. There's, there's absolutely no doubt about it. But I don't think that is productive in the long run for the health of the organization. But fear works. There's there's no doubt about it, but it only works for a period of time. And people find their way around fear. Maybe I don't want to go too far off of an aside, but a company that I used to work for, the CEO's uh, window was in complete view of the front entrance to the building. And he would note as he was sitting in his office who was coming in late and who was not coming in. And he would alert their managers that, you know, I saw Bill and he, he came in late like three days in a row, blah, blah, blah. So the word got out within the organization pretty quickly that, gee, the leader's watching when you're coming in. So what everybody learned was if you were coming in late, you came in the back door. <laughs> Is it funny how human beings find the, the, the kind of the way around things? It's no, an automatic thing, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think that goes back to that leadership by fear is people, people will find ways uh, to get around it or they will leave. Because ultimately, they have a choice. And that's the thing. Um, but do you think that choice is kind of closed down a little bit? Because obviously, with COVID, it's restricted people's movements. I think it has to a certain extent. There's no doubt that there's a high level of unemployment that's out there right now. And people are looking for their, you know, the opportunity to earn a paycheck in some challenging times. You know, my mother used to say, this, this too shall pass. We're going to get through this. And it's going to be those organizations that value people as individuals that will rise to the top. I couldn't agree with that more. I want to dive down a little bit into your management style because I'm intrigued because I think you've managed quite a few teams over the years. I have. I'm interested to see what your management style is like and, and also how did you apply it and what were your successes and your failures? Maybe start with the failures first. I think when I first became a manager, I it was kind of unique. I I was a young man. I was. I used to be the young guy, right? Which I uh, think many of my peers uh, can can say that today. So I was in my early 30s. I was promoted into a sales management position, and I had two or three people on my team who were very senior level folks that had significantly more experience than I did. And when I first got into the job, I was a very eager manager, and I was a little bit of a micromanager, and I was highly critical of some of the things they did. I learned very quickly that that wasn't getting me where I needed to be or where they wanted to be. And I think that was a real lesson for me because once I realized that, you know, I was there to help them to be successful. And most of the time it was trying to break down barriers internally in the organization as much as it was external. So I would go to bat for them to get things done internally that maybe they didn't have the right connections in some cases. Maybe it wasn't the right level of respect because of who they were. Or they just kind of threw their hands up and said, you know, that's the way it's always been and I'm not going to fight 
City Hall any longer. So that was one of the things I learned very quickly is, you know, if you help somebody to be successful, it'll come back in spades. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And I learned that from some of the senior level folks I had reporting to me at that point in time. I've always been highly collaborative. I would never ask someone to do something that I wouldn't be willing to do. And I think that's important because you have to demonstrate by example to get other people to follow you. You're halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest today is Ron France of Sculptural Spaces. I want to ask Ron next about breaking down fear in the workplace and how do you get your team on board, more importantly, your bosses? You, you did touch on one point earlier about fear. That was a really interesting thing. And it's one of my favorite subjects in, in a workplace situation because fear drives so much. You know, it's so many reactions to fear, so much inaction to fear as well. How did you kind of break down those barriers with fear when people are fearful of things? I think it's being as transparent as you can be. You know, it's fear of the known versus fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown is much more debilitating for people and fear of the known. So I, I would always be very straight with people in terms of communicating. If there was bad news, deliver the bad news and deliver the bad news if, if it was a team member or deliver the bad news to my boss. You know, hey, we didn't get that deal and here's what happened and this is the reason why rather than hiding from it. And I think when you do that, you learn the respect of people that they trust you. And trust is a huge issue, I think, in the work environment today because people will go above and beyond if they respect you and they trust you. Couldn't have said it better myself. Now, I've, I've let you do the kind of, not the negative sides, but where you learned the hard lessons. Let's flip that coin over and let's see what some of your major successes were. When you got a team, you might have had a challenging team. What were some of the things you did you put in place that really then brought that team right to the top and was extremely successful in your mind? One of the teams that I had the pleasure of leading in Southern California when I took over for one of the manufacturers that I represented, um, I took over a situation that was, it, it was really atrocious. I mean, the sales were shocking how little we were doing. And I had a couple of uh, folks that I inherited, uh, you know, from the team. And the initial impression that my, the leader that hired me was, is, hey, you're going to have to clean house. You know, you're going to have to start all over again. And, and as I got to know a couple of the individuals that were on the team, they were just demoralized. They, they hadn't seen success. They, they had never experienced success. And they, they almost had given up. I remember being in, a, in a, my initial meeting uh, with them. Everybody was somewhat complaining about this and complaining about that. And this was the way it was. And quite honestly, I got really angry and I lost my temper. And I don't usually lose my temper very often, but I really lost my temper and uh, I said, you know, I've been successful in everything that I've done in my life. And it's not because of me. It's because of the work I've put in and the people that I've been with. I've been on, you know, championship football teams. I've been on successful sales teams. And I'm telling you, you can be successful if you want to be successful. And if you don't want to be successful, you should probably get up and leave now. And there was like a calm in the room. And to this day, those three individuals that uh, I still keep in touch with say that that was like the turning point for them. It was like, wow, he really means it. <laughs> and we better get in line here. And they all became very successful salespeople. Yeah, it's almost like a shock to the heart, isn't it? To get the heart beating properly again. Is that, yeah. is that the analogy, a good analogy? Yeah. 
How much of the kind of analogy would you relate to sports? Because you were a great sportsman from again from, from Browns and the days of when you were in the university. Did you use any of those analogies to transfer into a work environment? Was that something you consciously did? I think sports is a good example of, you know, if you put the time in and you train, you build the right team around you. In some cases, you know, you've got to recruit your team, right? And you got to motivate your team. All of those things that I learned playing sports, particularly football for over 10 years, in high school, prior to high school, and then in college. It's all about putting in the work. When you put the work in, when you train, when you practice, that's where success comes from. You know, you just don't phone it in on Friday if you didn't do the work Monday to Thursday. Yeah, again, I totally, coming from a sales background, I totally understand that. That's a very interesting analogy. But the point being is it, it's not complicated, is it? That's that's the point. It, it isn't complicated. And, uh, you know, there's a saying that says something about, you know, 90% of success is just showing up. But just showing up isn't just for the game. It's showing up for practice. It's showing up for the presentation. It's showing up going that extra mile for the customer to get something done. It's got to go above and beyond. It pays off. It's like starting up my new enterprise. I'm making a lot of deposits in the bank, so to speak, because I know there'll be withdrawals in the future. So I'm going above and beyond in every way I can in servicing dealers, architects, designers, whomever. When they ask for something, I, I'm, I'm on it. That's how you earn the business long term. Yeah, you, you again, you hit that right, that nail right in the head there is that no matter what happens with the sale, the kind of mechanics of the sale, it's the customer service that really counts, isn't it? The actual communication with the customer. I suppose you get judged mostly by how you sort problems out or challenges. Yes. And and also being in it from that perspective and solving the problem and not looking for the opportunity for you necessarily, but helping that customer to understand what their needs might be and then potentially coming up with a solution that makes sense for them that solves their problem. Now, I know I've heard through the grapevine that you're not just a great businessman when it comes to actually the customer service and solving problems for your customers. You've done quite a lot of voluntary work over the years for various organizations. I'd love you to tell the listeners a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, you, you got to give back to the community. When my son sons were younger, I was very involved with Boy Scouts for many, many years. I went on way too many camping trips, <laughs> sleeping on the ground, uh, giving back from that perspective, from a personal standpoint. They have since, uh, you know, obviously grown and, and are in their, all are in their careers now. So I've gotten very involved recently with the St. Joseph Society in Los Angeles, which is addressing homelessness in a big, big way. There's an event we're hosting, a trunk show, if you will, because of COVID, no one really wants to see you in an office. So part of that is we're doing a food drive for the St. Joseph Center as part of uh, like a pre-Thanksgiving kind of a food drive. They're doing great, great work in Los Angeles. And uh, we did a Christmas tree decoration auction when I was with Technion most recently. We got the design community in Los Angeles involved and we, we raised somewhere about between seven and $8,000 that went directly to the St. Joseph Center. They're a great organization. So I think it's important, whatever endeavor you're in, is you got to give back to the community that you live in, wherever that might be. It's not that you're doing it because you want to get something from it. It's giving because I suppose it, it does feed the soul, doesn't it? It gives Absolutely. you a feeling of, 
you know, I've helped somebody else. And I, this is one of the reasons why I do these podcasts. People say, well, you're going to charge for it. I say, no, 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 no. This is about me. This is something I really enjoy. And I love finding out about people. And I now have adapted to the podcast medium. Yeah. And this is why it's great to speak to people like yourself or one of my ex-colleagues. Because I know we, we met many years ago in Hayworth, but I didn't really know you. So the only way I've really got to know you is through LinkedIn and then through the, the podcast medium, which has been great. What keeps you going? You've got a couple of key attributes. I would say you're a bit like me, I think. You're an eternal optimist. There's no doubt about that. But what are the other traits within Ron France that really drive you through to keep you going with the business, to keep this volunteering going? What is it about Ron? What's uh, the secret sauce? That's a that's a great question. Um, you know, I think I've just got a viewpoint of optimism that's inherent in myself as an individual, I, and I like to win. I mean, that's that's part of my competitiveness. That comes back to you know from being a kid, growing up in a small town in Pennsylvania, a coal mining town. It was it's a nice place to be from. <laughs> <laughs> you know, from that perspective. So I, I think there's a little bit, there's a little bit of that competitive side of me. There's also, you know, inherent in me, a little bit of fear that drives me. I grew up with not a lot as a child. Um, you know, my father was a coal miner. My mother worked in the factory for a long, long time, manufacturing facility. So and I lost my father very young. When I was 15 years old, he, he passed away very suddenly. So I think there's a little bit of fear that motivates me as well is I, I always am kind of looking over my shoulder a little bit. So my sense of optimism is also driven by a little bit of that. You got to keep at it. And my, my wife kind of jokes and says, you know, you're never going to retire. <laughs> and I think she's probably right. And that's the beauty of this uh, starting up a independent rep firm because it's my enterprise. Uh, my goal is to be able to grow it, to bring in other individuals into it and be able to, you know, share my success with others as we get through this, these challenging times. And then it isn't like there's a mandatory retirement age. As long as you're being productive and you like what you're doing and you're respected in the community, you can keep it going for as long as you want to keep it going. You said a lot of great things there. There's a couple of things I want to dissect. You know, I love the fact that you talked about where you came from and your father and that. It sounds like a really honest, hardworking community, which had what I would call essence of values that you live day to day. You know what I mean? It was how you lived your life. There wasn't anything high level about it. It's about getting to work, doing a day's work, getting paid, putting food on the table. That's a great background to come from, although you don't think of it at the time because you don't think yourself as being poor or not well off. But you had a kind of great grounding in some ways. It was hard, but pretty good in terms of what it set you up for life. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't think I would change anything. Uh, and most of my friends, we were all, we were all pretty in the same socioeconomic uh, class, so to speak. Although a couple of our friends were a little wealthier. One of my very good friends today, his father was an attorney and his family was really, really great to me growing up. But we were all like together and nobody really knew that we were really kind of poor. Everybody was the same. So it didn't matter. So you had aspirations, though. When did you know you had those big aspirations to do what you want to do? Ron, Ron France is going to go ahead. You know, this is, you know, when when did that occur, do you think, looking back? Probably 12 or 13 years old. And right around maybe the time that my father passed away, I wanted to leave where I grew up, which is a little town in, in eastern Pennsylvania. I knew I didn't want to stay there. That was not in the cards for me. I was a pretty good student, quite honestly. And I was a recruited athlete. 
And I had the chance to go to a you know prestigious Ivy League uh, institution, Brown University. Athletics was a bit of my ticket out because I had the academics, but I also had the the athletic side of it. Uh, be a recruited athlete. I hope you don't mind me asking, and it's a bit of a personal question, but you you, you did allude to your good lady there, and um, I just wondered how you guys actually met and how you you know, got together. And oh, that's a, kind of a funny story. So a freshman year, um, right before Christmas. One of my fellow football players, who I still remember, Kyle Simpson, who lives in Washington, D.C. today. I think he's a lobbyist, as a matter of fact. Uh, there was a birthday party for him. And basically, myself and m- many of the football players were there. And it was a keg party. And uh, drinking age in, in Rhode Island then was 18, so we were completely legal. <laughs> and the, the funny part of it was uh, the tap broke on the keg. So there was like 40 people there and they were literally, we were in a circle because you had to keep pouring the beer, right? So like everybody's just going around and there were, there's a handful of, of girls at the party and one of them happened to be, uh, her name is Julie Evans. It's still Julie Evans today. And that's when we first met. Fantastic, fantastic. We subsequently dated for pretty much all through Brown. Uh, she was in Philadelphia, which is where I got my first job. I got transferred to California. We subsequently got married about six months later. She moved to California and we've been here ever since and have three children that are all successful in their careers. And yeah, California has been very good to us. It, it sounds wonderful. And I, I'm really glad to hear that story because it's, it is a success story because so many people separate through the pressures of life. And, you know, it's, it's understandable that happens. It, it, it sounds as if she's been a real rock behind you because, you know, they always say behind a successful man i know it's a bit of a sexist statement but it's it's what they've said many years ago there's always a much more successful woman or a much stronger woman you know and i i suppose partner isn't it you know is yeah, one yeah. part there's always a much stronger one so how do you think that the julie's complimented your life as as you've gone along well uh julie's much smarter than i am quite candidly <laughs> uh she earned her doctorate in education uh just in the last three or four years uh, she runs an educational nonprofit called Project Tomorrow, which is a national education organization focusing on STEM and STEAM in curriculum. She's helping a lot of schools. She's actually really, really busy. She's going to be writing a book about what she calls the uh, free agent learner in terms of how kids today are using the internet for a variety of different ways and how technology is used in the classroom. She's had a full career her entire life. Uh, We both worked. We had all the challenges of dual career. Who's picking up the kids? You know, who's doing daycare? How are we going to do the late start for school? Hey, I'm traveling next week. You know, all the craziness that has gone along with that. And, And all three of our kids are, you know, great very successful. Our daughter's an urban planner. Uh, well, she's got her master's degree in urban planning, but she um, she's a loan officer for a uh, for an investment company that focuses on nonprofits. My younger son is an architect in Seattle, and my middle son David is an art curator in Los Angeles. Wow! So from those little humble beginnings in Pennsylvania, what a phenomenal success over a couple of generations, eh? Yeah. You must be very proud, yeah. very proud indeed. Well, listen, um, I'd love to sort of direct ourselves back to the business because that's one of the reasons why I, I like to bring on colleagues who, who've started their own business and what have you. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, the, the kind of how you kind of set the business up in terms of your, your vision, so to speak. And has that vision kind of played out or have you had to kind of 
jig along to another kind of route, you know, along the way and say, oh, wait a minute, that's not quite working out how I expected it. This is more the kind of area that I'm looking at. How did that pan out for you? Well, you, you know, the, the derivation of everyone asks, well, what, what sculptural spaces? What's that all about, right? And the, uh, the, the concept behind it really was I did a word search as I was thinking about uh, coming up with a domain that was available. And I, I uh, stumbled upon an architectural and interiors firm. And one of their taglines was, well, we sculpt spaces for our clients that meet their culture, cultural needs. And I thought, gee, that's kind of interesting. And I started doing some word search on sculptural and sculptious and all those kinds of things. And then I thought about, well, an architect, a designer, a dealer sculpts a space by the tools that they're using from the variety of manufacturers that they're representing in their creativity. So that's where sculptural spaces came from, the name. And the domain just happened to be available. So that was great. So I grabbed sculptural spaces right away and then started to think about looking for product lines that really were focused on architectural side of interiors. But what I found in the short term, quite candidly, because of COVID, you know, many of those product lines are in projects that are that are out six months, 12 months. So I've been working with a couple of manufacturers now that are uh, definitely more short term in terms of their product offerings. That's uh, maybe a little bit more transactional. And uh, that's been able to drive some revenue for me as I'm in this startup mode. So I've got a seating line that's kind of unique that is highly promoted on the Internet. They're uh, looking to a dealer channel as well. So that's been just one example of kind of pivoting a little bit in that um, you've got to have that short-term immediate business as well as the long-term side of things. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That balance between the cash flow, which is such an essence and so important for a new business, you know, it's very difficult to get that initially. But balancing it between the kind of transactional goods, as you've just said, those quick turnover, you know, you you, you get a sale and within a month, you've got the the cash coming in as opposed to the long term. It's a balance between the two for sure. Yeah. Just out of interest, a, a little bird told me you're also into the kind of the acoustical sound side of things as well. Is that right? Yeah, there's a couple of lines that I'm representing that uh, that are addressing acoustics in the, in the, in the auditoriums as an example. You know, one of the companies that I'm representing is Setia Systems, which is out of Chicago. They do lots of uh, auditorium seating, uh, but they also have an acoustical solution now, which is wood and and felt and fabrics. And then two lines, Murano, which is primarily a wood solution for architectural ceilings and those kinds of things. And then another company, Fabric Track, that's been around forever, but the uh, distributor is here, just happens to be live close to me. So I picked them up as a line. I think acoustics in the um, in the work environment are going to become even more prevalent than maybe they were before, because I think the spaces uh, are going to change. So the spaces as you're coming back into the office, I think are going to be more collaborative. So there's still going to be physical distancing that's going to have to be addressed. But the acoustics are also going to have to be addressed because I think it's going to be even more open plan than it has been. But individual workstations are probably not going to be as prevalent. No, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things that just appealed to me is I noticed when doing my podcast, it's an environment with hard surfacing. Um, you know, I've got some hard walls where I get these echoes and things like that. You know, and it's long shot, left field, but you could almost do a package for the podcasters because there's thousands and tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands out there. You know, a kind of package that's a package deal with a foam piece and a, a material piece and things like that. I don't know. Long shot. I think the whole home... Working out of the home and everything that's going along with that um, is, 
you know, there's some some of the manufacturers that are out there are really addressing it in very unique ways. You know, Herman Miller just launched their gaming chair, and that product, from what I understand, I have some friends that that are that work in Zealand, Michigan, who are familiar with some of the folks at Herman Miller, and that product is absolutely flying off the shelves. Wow. Well, who would have believed it, eh? Yeah. You know, just incredible. Well, listen, we're going to have to sort of maybe just uh, wind things up. Uh, and I just wanted to ask you a couple of things really before we uh, we do that. How can people get a hold of you? What's the best way of getting a hold of you, Ron? Uh, via my website, it's ron at sculpturalspaces.com. Or they can do a search on uh, LinkedIn on Ron, Ron France. Uh, there's not a lot of us out there under that name. It was kind of funny. I, I've actually been able to capture uh, ronfrance.com as a domain. Fantastic. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever use it, but at least I have it. Or they can call me on my cell phone, which is my work cell phone is 667-333-6301. Okay, just repeat that again. 657-333-6301. And if they want to email you as well, what's the best way of getting you through email? Ron at sculpturalspaces.com. Perfect, perfect. Well, listen, I want to just leave one quick question towards the end here that I tend to ask quite a few of my guests. If you were 18 again, what would old Ron tell young Ron? Oh, gee, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I would say... If there was one thing that I look back on that I wish I would have done that I didn't do is I would have gone when I had the opportunity to go to business school, to get my MBA. If there's one thing that I would say that I would, and thinking back, that's something that I would have done. The other would have been to go into business for myself long before I did. I had the opportunity to make that transition and it didn't work out, I could have pivoted to another scenario in an entrepreneurial role, and I elected not to. As I think back on what would it would have done differently, it would have been those two things. And that's a very common thing. I think that's based around what you originally talked about, fear and the unknown, you know, that you don't have that confidence when you're much younger. There's, there's some people that do, yep. but usually it's, a, it's it kind of built up until you get into your mid to late 40s and you think, ah, you know, what the heck, I'm just going to do it. You know, yeah. the, the fear kind of goes. And you just wish you could bottle that lack of fear <laughs> to use when you're 18 you know Absolutely. well Ron it's it's been a real pleasure I always really enjoy talking to you because you have some great stories and I love your background I really love what you've done with sculptural spaces and I think you know when you look on LinkedIn and those 8,000 responses I'm so jealous I really am <laughs> but it's a nice jealousy you know it's that well jelly I feel inside but you know the great thing about it is we can learn from that from our from our colleagues and our friends absolutely and if anyone is whoever listens to this if you'd like to reach out my phone's almost always on, and or you can send me an email. I'm highly responsive, and uh, I firmly believe that if you can help someone, it will come back to you. It's all good karma, so I'm glad to help anyone I can uh, when they reach out. Okay, well, on that note, I couldn't have said that better myself. I really right, thank David. you very much for your time again, and it's been a real pleasure. Thanks good again. Good deal. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to On Another Track with David Wilson. My guest today was Ron France, owner of Sculptural Spaces. A unique opportunity to maximize your space through innovation and service. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in the series. Just look out for On Another Track with David Wilson on your local podcast platform. 
and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated, keeping us safe on the roads of North America. Mm -hmm.